Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said he'd wait until after the general election before deciding how to close the state's multi-billion dollar budget gap, hoping that Democratic wins for president and U.S. Senate might lead to a larger federal relief package for blue states. Well, now that Election Day has come and gone, and with the most likely scenario, a President Joe Biden, but a Republican-led U.S. Senate, the governor and legislature will soon have to make some big decisions. More now from the Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt. It's becoming clear that Republicans will likely keep control of the U.S. Senate. That might mean less money for the state in a federal relief package. Senate Leader Mitch McConnell has said repeatedly he does not want to bail out blue states, though he did say on the day after elections that he expects a new pandemic federal stimulus package to be approved before the end of the year. Governor Andrew Cuomo says the total state debt is so high that it's nearly impossible for New York to close it alone. New York State is already $50 billion in debt between state and local governments. And they have not passed legislation on the state and local relief. The $50 billion figure includes debt from local governments, including New York City, as well as the MTA, which has suffered huge drops in ridership during the pandemic. E.J. McMahon with the fiscal watchdog group, the Empire Center, says the more immediate problem, though, is dealing with the current year's state budget deficit. The governor's budget office, in its mid-year report, estimates that to be $8 billion. McMahon says while that number may be less dramatic, it's no less worrisome. That's as big a problem as the state has ever had in history. Next year's budget gap is projected currently at 16 to 17 billion dollars. That's also as big a problem as the state has ever had. So you don't need to exaggerate that much to understand what the size of the problem here is. Cuomo's budget director, Robert Mujica, says in the mid-year report that the state has already reduced spending by $4.3 billion. Actions include a hiring freeze and a temporary halt to any new state contracts. Planned raises for the state's workforce have also been delayed. And the budget office has also temporarily withheld 20 percent of state aid due to school districts and local governments. The governor, speaking on Albany Public Radio Station, WAMC, says now that elections are over, he expects the Republicans in the U.S. Senate to provide New York with some of the money it needs. He says it's not only Democratic-led states that have deficits. I'm the chairman of the National Governors Association. I talk to the Republican governors all day long. They need a stimulus package. They spent money on COVID. Their revenues are down. McMahon says even if New York benefits from a federal bailout package, it will only take the state through one more fiscal year. After that, he says, New York will have to take steps to curb its long-term problem of spending more money than it takes in in revenues. The federal government is going to give you something as a stopgap filler, not a permanent lift. And the longer you put off a necessary spending cut, the more you have to cut 
Cuomo has warned of deep spending cuts, tax increases, and even long-term borrowing if the federal relief package falls short. The governor, in the interview on WAMC, also suggested another way of gaining revenue for the state, legalizing the adult use of recreational marijuana. I think this year it is ripe because the state is going to be desperate for funding. Legalizing marijuana would not go far, though, toward plugging a multi-billion dollar budget gap. It's estimated that annual revenues from the sale of the drug would be around $300 million a year. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Shartok. Well, Alan, this week, speaking with Don Levy of the Siena Poll, who works closely with the New York Times, you talked about New York, the fact that it was predicted for Biden to win big. 32 points was the poll that before the election predicted Biden would win in New York. It was closer to 20 points, Alan, and Republicans did much better than expected, even in blue state New York. With the financial crisis, the governor facing a $30 billion deficit coming up and having all the power, having both chambers of the legislature, could this signal the possibility that Republicans have some life in New York? Well, they do. We know that they elected Governor George Pataki three times. Same thing in my state of Massachusetts with Governor Baker, a Republican, wins. There gets to be a point when Democratic voters, too, say, okay, we've had enough. We don't like the approach that is being taken by the Democrats. Now, right now, I think I detect a little difference in the Cuomo approach. I think, and he's been good to talk to us about this, I think he's a little more quiescent, a little less full of bombast than he was before. Remember, it wasn't that long ago, he was on the television every morning, every morning, giving a talk about things, and it led to his tremendous approval ratings in New York. But New York has always been a divided state. Upstate New York traditionally had been Republican. Now that starts to slip away. We see the Senate getting taken over by the Democrats. Nevertheless, we know from this election and from what we have seen that the Republican Party is still very much alive. And if Cuomo doesn't play his cards right, and if the Republicans can make the argument to their constituents that the governor isn't helping upstate New York the way he ought to be, there could be a real resurgence of the Republican Party. Speaking of playing his cards, so he's been, as you point out, very successful, had hero status around the country, the world, as a result of how he handled COVID-19. He's written a book about it. Does he take an opportunity, should it be offered by President-elect Biden, to be, let's say, attorney general? That is anybody's guess. He says, quite correctly, no, I want to be governor. You know, as I have often said, you don't get to go to the prom unless somebody asks you, or you don't go to the prom unless somebody says yes to you. But that's where he is right now. Why in the world would he say, I take a position with Biden if, in fact, Biden hasn't asked him yet? Look, it's nice to be the governor because you report 
to no one except theoretically to the legislature, but not so much, and to the Almighty. In the case of going to a cabinet position, you're working for somebody else, and that's a huge shift. I don't think Cuomo wants that. Well, if and only if the president leaves office and is then a private citizen again, does his fate end in New York State, Alan? Well, it could well. We have a uh, attorney general of the state, Dish James, who was after him on a number of things and might result in criminal charges. And if the criminal charges are true, you could see this guy in an orange suit. Same thing with Cy Vance. Cy Vance is asking for things, and it's clear from his court filings that he's got some goods. And we don't know what they are yet because it's grand jury, and grand jury is secret. Nevertheless, if I was Trump, I would think, oh, if I don't stay as president where I have this incredible protection, they can't come after me if I'm president. Some stupid memo in the Justice Department says that. But if, in fact, he's out, he's going to face all of these potential criminal charges. And then we have to see whether or not, in the name of unity, as you have posited to me in the past, David, and questioned me about, Biden says, okay, we don't want to put a former president in jail. I think that would be a big mistake because in this country, no man or woman should be above the law. Legislative Gazette Political Observer, Alan Shartok. are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. As colleges and universities continue to deal with COVID-19 cases on the rise, a spike of cases has caused the University at Albany to move to fully virtual classes for the rest of the fall semester. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. Coronavirus is spreading more rapidly than at any other point during this pandemic year. The U Albany campus has seen an uptick in cases, and Monday officials decided to go on pause. U Albany spokesman Jordan Carlio Evangelist. Starting early last week, uh, the Monday and Tuesday after Halloween, we started to see uh, an uptick in cases detected by our in house surveillance testing system. Uh, that's the testing that we do weekly of every student, faculty, and staff member on campus um, who are asymptomatic. Uh, it's a system we use to get a sense for how prevalent the virus is among people who are feeling fine, which is really important because uh, from a perspective of controlling the spread of the virus, those are the people you want to identify and quarantine and isolate uh, because folks moving around who don't know they're sick are likely to make many, many other people sick. So um, at any rate, early last week, we started to see some movement in those numbers. Uh, by the end of last week, that movement was concerning enough to us that we took some interim steps to limit operations on campus and asked every resident student, so every student living in our dorms and, and on-campus apartments, to 
submit a, a sample, a saliva sample for surveillance testing on Friday, every single one. Samples were tested and analyzed on campus over the weekend. Carlio Evangelist says by Monday morning, enough of an increase in positive cases, a presumed positivity rate of 3.3%, prompted a move to all remote learning. He says the students stuck to the rules and did everything right. We don't have any evidence that the spike that we're seeing now is linked to large-scale parties. Um, you know, there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, the capital region more generally, as you probably are aware, has seen uh, a surge in cases and community spread over the last two to three weeks. Our numbers actually stayed lower for longer, which suggests to us that what we're seeing in this surge on campus is this community spread that's been going on around us and around our campus for you know two to three weeks now creeping in. Student housing will remain open and operational and students are expected to remain on campus and in their rooms as much as possible. The last day of the fall semester is November 24th. The spring semester is scheduled to begin February 1st. Well I think you'll see uh, in a lot of ways the start of the spring semester will look a lot like the start of the fall semester. So before students return to our campus in August, they had to be tested and show proof of a negative COVID-19 test. Uh, that'll be true uh, before we resume classes in person on February 1st. Uh, that'll be about a week later than we normally do. Um, you know, we'll have regular and frequent surveillance testing. At his Tuesday morning briefing, Albany County Executive Dan McCoy announced 68 new cases of COVID were confirmed overnight with 400 new cases over the past week. 32 had close contact to positive cases, five healthcare workers, two people had reported traveling in the state, and then the bigger number, 29, don't have a clear source of infection. We know it goes back to some might not, maybe a small percentage out of that, but out of that 29, there's people that they're just not telling us. Again, you're not protecting somebody. We're not gonna lock them up. But if you want us to stop the spread and you don't want to shut businesses down again and you want to get back to somewhat of a new norm of the world we're in, uh, we need your help. Albany City Schools revealed a passenger on a first student bus Friday tested positive. Also on the bus were students from New Scotland Elementary School, Albany High School, Montessori Magnet School, and Edmund J. O'Neill Middle School. 46 students in all have been quarantined. Schenectady County Public Health Services confirmed that an employee at Katie O'Byrne's Irish Pub and Restaurant in the city of Schenectady tested positive for COVID-19. The county says the employee last worked at the restaurant on November 5th from 6.30 p.m. to 8.30 p.m. Also Monday, New York State Assembly Minority Leader Will Barclay announced he tested positive for the virus. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. A New York State Supreme Court judge allowed Bard College to set up a polling site on Election Day after a long legal battle. So how did it turn out? Well, today we offer an update to a story we've been following since Bard and other petitioners sued to move the polling site on campus. The Legislative Gazette's Allison Dunn has more. After weeks of legal wrangling, the judge issued an order October 30th based on an agreement between the parties that the Red Hook District 5 polling site would have two locations, its original site at St. John's Episcopal Church and a new setup on the campus of Bard College about a mile and a half away. 
Initially, the judge sided with the Dutchess County Board of Elections, specifically the rationale of Republican Election Commissioner Eric Haight, who said it would be unfair to voters to move a polling site so close to Election Day. Bard appealed as two Red Hook polling sites were moved after the judge on October 13th denied a petition from Bard College to relocate the polling site from the church to its Annandale on Hudson campus. Jonathan Becker is Bard's executive vice president and vice president for academic affairs. He describes Election Day voting on campus. So first it went really well. Uh, We had 20 people lined up to vote at uh, 6 in the morning. It was particularly gratifying at around 9 a.m. when Bard President Leon Botstein and uh, senior Sadia Saba, who were both plaintiffs in the lawsuit, came and voted together. To see that happen was really heartwarming. Throughout the legal battle, Bard contended that its college community comprises the majority of the district's eligible voting population at nearly 70 percent. Becker says the majority of voters on campus Election Day were students, faculty, and staff at the college, though a few did come from outside. Becker estimates that about 250 voters used the campus polling site. Commissioner Haight did not respond to a request for comment in time for this broadcast. Previously, he has said he will always protect the needs of all the voters. The initial lawsuit filed by Bard College and the Andrew Goodman Foundation, which supports student voting across the country, claims the Dutchess County Board of Elections allegedly violates students' voting rights. It also claims that the District 5 polling site at the church is not compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, is too small for social distancing, and is generally unsafe, especially during the coronavirus pandemic. Bard has not reported any cases of COVID-19. The only difficulty we had on Election Day uh, was that at the behest of Commissioner Haight, uh, a deputy sheriff was sent to campus um, to question uh, the process of admitting people to the poll site. He says Bard asked poll workers to answer questions that were part of state guidance on elections, and he claims the county did not ask for safety plans. People who came uh, into the campus center to vote uh, were asked to indicate if they had COVID or had been exposed to COVID. Uh, and if they indicated that was the case, they were going to follow a protocol um, in which they would have kept their place in line and passed through in a more socially distant manner. Um, the Board of Elections uh, insisted that this was uh, a bizarrely an attempted voter suppression um, and sent a deputy sheriff to campus to uh, speak to uh, the folk at the polling uh, location, including me. The polling site on campus was allowed for that day only. We're committed to continue to represent the needs of our students, faculty, and staff and the rights of the voters uh, in District 5. Uh, we continue to believe that the college is a safer and better place to vote. It's handicap accessible. Um, and we will continue to press our case uh, to ensure that voters can vote in the uh, best place uh, possible. Becker, who is also director of the Center for Civic Engagement and an associate professor of political studies at Bard College, wrote an op-ed with Democratic Queen State Assemblywoman Nilly Rovich in the Albany Times Union November 3rd. We're going to seek a legislative solution, which is we believe that the state should encourage polling stations on college campuses where there are large clusters uh, of voters. Um, We think that's the right thing to do. We think it's an educational thing to do. Um, And uh, I'm hoping that there will be a legislative solution so that we don't have to deal with the capriciousness of uh, individual uh, election commissioners as we've had to deal with in Dutchess County for a couple decades. He says that on the 50th anniversary of the 26th Amendment to lower the voting age to 18, it is incumbent upon him and his colleagues as educators to preserve that right. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Allison Dunn.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has indicated that legalization of marijuana has a very good chance of passing in 2021 with both the financial crisis because of the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that New Jersey is the latest state surrounding New York to legalize marijuana. Joining us to talk about the issue back again with us and whether 2021 will be the year that marijuana becomes legal in New York is Dr. Lynn Parodnik, a medical marijuana doctor from downstate New York. Welcome back. Lynn. Thank you, David. Always a pleasure to speak with you and your gang. And yeah, there's a lot going on at this point. Uh, elections are over. Jersey's going wreck. So there's a lot of pressure in New York because that bridge is right here and people have cars. And that's a lot of money for New York to miss out on. We're starting to see now some estimates, four to $500 million in revenue or some numbers that I saw on recreational sales. But there's a long way to go until then. As you just pointed out, New Jersey has voted by, by ballot uh, to make it legal. We have it legal in Massachusetts. We have Connecticut making moves. We have Vermont now legalizing a market, although the drug has been legal. They've now, this session, legalized a market that's supposed to be coming in 2022. So there's lots of competition surrounding New York. The governor knows it. He's predicting a $30 billion budget deficit potentially in the next two years, which is pushing many lawmakers to perhaps more concrete action this legislative session. The one thing, obviously, that you and I have talked about that continues to be a sticking point is to make sure those affected by the so-called Rockefeller drug laws are included in the profits, the revenue that will ultimately come from any legalization of the drug. You got that right, and you did a great job summarizing. Yes, actually, with the last proposal for recreation, recreation itself was not passed, but expunging previous records, cleaning up laws, making life a little bit easier for people who ended up incarcerated over these crazy, crazy rules. That was what was has been accomplished. Then the question is, okay, let's give people who've been tortured with these issues jobs. Well, it's going to take a while before things actually move forward. Once legalization is passed, for example, in Massachusetts, it took two years to get up and running. So how do we find these people? How do we give them jobs and how do we train them? It's a lot more than saying, okay, these people have been harmed, let's help. There has to be programs in place. There have to be people working within the government who are keeping an eye open for this population and helping them proceed, not just end up hanging out and not doing too much and giving these people vouchers, whether it would be food stamps or some kind of economic check it's not going to help them. People need jobs. They need focus. They need to move forward. Yeah, and part of the mix here is when you look at the recreational industry nationwide, it's a couple of major companies at the top. 
siphoning off most of the profits. And when it comes down to the individual markets, so let's take Massachusetts, for example, where it's recreational is legal, the cost of the drug is often prohibitive for many people who don't have that kind of money to spend on the recreational drug. So a couple of things. Do we, as we begin to see it legalized across the country, do we see prices at all coming down, number one? And number two, there's another option, and that is, and many states have exercised that, allowing people to grow it. Right. Grow your own medicine. Does it get any simpler, easier, and cheaper, so to speak? Also, uh, states have caregiver programs where friends, family can grow plants for other people who need them. And those programs are pretty amazing, but that takes a while to come to the surface and be put in place. Although you drive through back roads in upstate New York, you can spot plenty of plants out there doing exactly that. I think New Yorkers, especially seniors, have woken up. I have families who come in for the consult for grandma, and the the grandson whips out his uh, cell phone and showing me the pictures of, look what we're growing in our backyard. It's not quite the right one for her, but we're working at it. So the flip side of this is actually you're getting families working together to come up with good strategies, health, wellness for families. What they come up with may not be exactly what's needed, but at least you see family involvement. It's a lot more than just, okay, go to CVS and pick up what you need now because tomorrow you're going to be on another cycle and then, uh uh-oh, you may not have enough for the end of the month. Yeah. Finally, let's just take a turn here for a minute, because before we hit the pandemic and the last couple of times we spoke, the crisis of vaping was happening in the United States, and much of it was traced to counterfeit marijuana vapes with some brand names that were being counterfeited. And we were hearing of all sorts of problems with spotted lung and coughing fits and kids being hurt mainly because they were vaping. What are you hearing? I'm hearing that it really got down to people buying garbage and using it all day. There was not one medical dispensary product implicated. It was in the oil, and the cartridges come with oil in them. In the oil, you have cannabis, so you have the THC, CBD, and all the other cannabinoids and stuff. But vitamin E acetate was the oil used as the carrier. It's pure garbage, and it's really, really cheap. So it appears that this is really people vaporizing, meaning heating up this oil, inhaling it. That's what made people sick. So the real issue here is now, for young people and those listening, you don't go to some dealer you don't know. Right. And even if you know your dealer, he's still my guy, and he's not selling clean products necessarily. He may have a batch of something that's absolutely amazing. The next one can be cut with ketamine, all kinds of crap. So kids really need to be careful. Parents of children need to be careful. And also families need to talk. A parent finds a vape in a kid's uh, nightstand. They need to have the conversation. What is this? Why are you using it? What's it about? Dr. Lynn Parodnik is a medical marijuana doctor in New York. Dr. Parodnik, I can't thank you enough for talking with us about this issue that impacts New Yorkers. Thank you, David. It's always great to talk with you and explain from my perspective what I'm seeing. 
And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2046. Or just listen or podcast on the web, wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina.